Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here, as always. And if you could, take two seconds and go to warroommedia.com, RyanRaySenior.com, it doesn't matter, and sign up for the newsletter. We've moved it to Substack so it makes the communication between us and you so much easier. This way, all the podcasts go right to your phone. Okay, today we have on a guest and a co-host. So let's talk about um, our co-host first, who actually helped set this interview up. He's been on the show before. We'll link to that in the show notes. So if you want to hear what Tyler had to say when he was on the podcast, oof, it's been a year ago or so. So he has, Tyler Johnson, co-host today, was... um, has over 25 years of experience working in some of the largest companies in the world. He's worked for Dell for over 21 years in various sales, marketing, and general leadership roles. He lived and worked in Shanghai for 10 of those years as a local hired foreign national. He's led sales organizations with Dell for uh, within China and across Asia. He's done all kinds of stuff. He is the man. He's also, um, like me, on the board of advisors for the George H.W. Bush Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. That's where we met. Uh, he's published a book. He is this all-around awesome dude. He's worked with startups, all kinds of stuff. So be sure to check Tyler out. And our guest is General Robert Spaulding, who is a national security uh, strategist and a globally recognized expert on Chinese economic competition and influence. He retired from the Air Force as a brigadier general. He's a former pilot of the B-2 stealth bomber. Um, he's wor- he's written several books, Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slip, and his most recent book is War Without Rules, China's Playbook for Global Domination. So yeah, a lot to get to. Um, hope you enjoyed this podcast, and let me know what you think, of course, in the newsletter. We'll talk soon. General Spalding, welcome to the War Room. Thank you. It's great to be here. Okay. I haven't talked China on the podcast in some time, so it's good to get you on. You obviously have very strong opinions about this topic, uh, U.S.-China relations and China international relations, uh, published several books, as I mentioned in, in, in the introduction. Maybe unpack a little bit more about your background and why you think China is the threat that, that you perceive them to be. Sure. Um, so uh, I spent almost 30 years in the Air Force uh, flying mostly B-2s. I, uh, first, I flew the B-52 bomber, but then uh, went over to fly the stealth bomber and did that for most of my career. Um, in addition to that, I went and lived in China, studied uh, Chinese language at the Defense Language Institute, and then went and lived in Shanghai, studying at Tongji University, um, MBA classes in Chinese for a couple of years. And so when all my um, colleagues were you know, doing uh, their thing in the Middle East, I was in China. And so that led to a series of policy-related assignments uh, well, I wasn't flying B2s uh, in the military. And so, you know, I have a pretty um, uh, deep uh, background in planning, you know, fighting and preparing uh, for war, you know, along the, the Western tradition, particularly as it pertains to the high-end um, portion of war. It's very strategic. So the B2 is used typically to enable other forces to come in. So we we come in and we take down the integrated air defense in order to allow other airplanes, other um, ground troops and other capabilities to be used to achieve our political outcomes. And so that's the way I was brought up. Well, when I started studying China, going to live in China and then having all of these China related policy assignments, 
I began to realize that the way that we looked at war was fundamentally at odds from the way that way they looked at war. In essence, the very easiest way to think about um, what I the the conclusion I came to was is to go back to um, World War II. Right prior to World War II, the French had built uh, what was uh, known as a Maginot Line, and the Maginot Line was designed to prevent the Germans from invading France. Well, the Germans invented the Blitzkrieg, the predecessor to airland battle, and just went around using air power and tanks, went around the Maginot Line and invaded France anyway. And so the conclusion I came to uh, over many years of studying in the Pentagon and living in China and studying the Chinese is that they had done the same thing to America by using globalization and the internet to just bypass the military might of the United States to begin to undermine our political independence and sovereignty from within by attaching themselves to all of the Western institutions uh, in order to destroy Western traditions. Okay, and so one of the things that, that I struggle with when I think about the China debate is, um, from my perspective as a free market capitalist, I'm like, hey, capitalism should defeat communism or even socialism. What about China? So if we can be capitalists, we will defeat them. Why am I wrong in thinking that? Or am I wrong in thinking that? Well, because um, there's a famous line um, that goes something like this. Uh, the capitalists will sell us a rope that we'll use to hang them. And what it means is that the capitalists tend to want to do business with everybody, even people that mean them harm. And so in the case of the first Cold War, you know, when we understood that, you know, all the Soviet active measures, for example, we just said, hey, we're not going to trade with you. And so capitalism can defeat, um, you know, Marxist-Leninism. But it can, can't defeat it if you allow Marxist-Leninism to infiltrate your society. So Mao's um, vision of warfare is called People's War. And so the Nationalist Party, who the, the Chinese communists were able to overthrow, were better trained, better equipped. They you know, got money and resources and training from the United States. But the Chinese Communist Party went around to the population in China and slowly changed their minds, right? So it was, it was political warfare. And so the thing that the Chinese Communist Party realized was that globalization and the internet allowed you to export political warfare through these connections that had been denied the Soviet Union. That's how we, so yes, capitalism can defeat Marxist-Leninism, but it can't defeat it if you allow the capitalists to do business with the Marxist Leninists because they will use those business relationships to get the capitalists to begin to lose sight and stop supporting the traditions and the principles that their societies are founded upon. This is a basic premise. Hey, Rob, how are you? Good, good. Hey, sorry I missed you in, in Miami. No, no worries. You, you had more important things to do. Yeah, well, you did too. So, hey, a, a question for you. 
you know, what is it that that we can do um, to make people more aware of some of the the risks that are out there um, to businesses uh, that are uh, potentially interacting with uh, either Chinese companies or companies that are doing business with China? What do you think the best way is to to make people aware here in the United States? A lot of people just don't have the awareness there, and and how do you make them aware and you know, what's, what's the next step after the awareness? Well, um, you know, that's one of the reasons I, I got out of the military was to write my books and be able to, uh, you know, bring light to these things. And what I said in my books, uh, particularly in Stealth War, um, is that people need to dig deeper, you know, where their specific interests are concerned. And so once you understand, hey, this, these are the things I should be looking for, then you know, it's their responsibility to begin to look for those things in their own organizations, you know, in the things that they uh, participate in. And so you've seen that over the last, you know, say three to five years where more and more and more is coming to light about how the Chinese Communist Party is related to this company or this organization and the implications for that. And so I think, you know, it's starting to happen, but the the Chinese Communist Party is so prolific and they're so widespread that you know we have to just continue to bring these things to light and people can do that by just looking at the associations you know this is this is standard um, you know uh, network um, building so how do I understand the networks who's who's related to employee wise company wise investor wise and when you start to break those networks down, you start to, you know, ultimately this web connects very clearly the U.S. corporate sector and the financial institutions, as well as the university system. And when you've gotten those, you by definition, because of their connections to the political process, you have a means to get into the political process. So just understanding those relationships is all you need to do. I mean, you, you don't have to go the step further and say, I have to prove that Xi Jinping, you know, on December 21st, gave the order for this company to do that. That's not the, the, the way that you need to think about it. What you need to think about is money corrupts and the connection of your company to a Chinese company is the process by which the Chinese Communist Party begins to corrupt your company. Oh, okay, so... When I hear that, I say, okay, I see that as possible. And then I also see how poorly the Chinese Communist Party manages their own economy. And so there is a sense in which this threat, I, I understand the threat that you're, you're alluding to. And, and I, it, we see it quite often where companies can't put Taiwan on their website or they allow something to happen in China that they would never allow over here. So I, I'm not disputing that. Um, but again, I kind of go back to this, this premise, which is, they might have a, a short-term ability, but in the long term, won't they just screw it up? Isn't it just too much for them to plan that ultimately these plans will be their demise? Okay, well, let's let's look at it this way. Um, what if um, you, know, you have two teams, two professional teams, and one team, uh, say, say the game is football, one team gets 11 players and the other team gets five, Right. And let's say those five players on the other team are the five best players in the NFL, but that's all they get is five people. 
and you continue to run that game every single time you're going to see the one with 11 win because they've got more resources now where are the resources coming from well marxist leninist systems are inefficient china is 75 percent state-owned enterprise we know this but what happens what happens be, because of our relationship with china is that the technology talent and capital that's produced in the free market system finds its way into china because of these economic and financial and trade uh, relationships and so you have the net effect of taking the resources that during the first cold war were going into the Amer uh, into america and other free societies now they're going into china and if you want you know just one example of this look at sequoia china just in the last few months raising nine billion dollars when Everybody in America and the rest of the free world were pencils down when it came to investing in, in venture. So it is the it is the way that they are able to keep their inefficient system to continue to be, you know, in terms of performance, outperform the Western countries, not because they're better, but because they have their resources and they have the West's resources and and you know. Let's take this on an individual basis. Technology. They use the, the, the machinery of the state and machinery of the corporate sector to steal everything they need. Talent. They just pay the smartest minds to come to China and bring the technology. What, no matter what it is, this is how they got ICBMs. This is how they get quantum. This is how they get nearly all it. The, the guy that the reason they have a seven nanometer chip right now is because they brought the lead engineer for T, from TSMC to help them and a lot of other engineers. And then capital, I just told you about Sequoia. So, you know, while on its face, you would say, OK, these two teams uh, should be, you know, the, 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 the capitalist team should be a lot better because they got better players. In reality, they've got five players and the the Chinese Communist Party's got 11. Hey, Rob, what about um, the open financial system? Do you think that helps or hurts China by not having a open financial system? You know, they've been talking about opening things up and having convertible currencies and that kind of stuff. Do you think that is an advantage or a disadvantage? It's an absolute advantage. In fact, they talk about George Soros and the Asian financial crisis and unrestricted warfare. I write about it in a war without rules. Basically, they acknowledge that the fact that the open, um, the, the free market system for currency is not in China's favor because the dollar is the reserve currency of the world. And so, you know, anytime there is um, any kind of challenge within a country, the first thing to come under pressure is the currency. And the currency comes under pressure. What happens? You have capital flight, right? People start to pull their capital out of the country. So what China did was build a financial system that is closed off from capital flight. They have a non-convertible currency and they have strict capital controls in terms of who can uh, and who and when can uh, renminbi yuan be uh, transferred for any other type of currency. People's Bank of China is the only one that can do it. 
and the government structurally regulates who and when and why you can transfer currency. So when you have an enormous debt bubble like you do in China right now, by the way, most of that was financed by Western dollars, the money goes in and then when, so all of those, you know, uh, real estate holders would like to get their money, they can't get their money out. So your money goes in, it doesn't come out. So having a closed financial system, you were never able to take that closed financial system and then integrate that into the free market financial system. But we, uh, for whatever reason, we gave special privileges to the Chinese. You can come on into the International Monetary Fund. You can come on into the World Bank. We can, so we've created a system that allows them to funnel uh, real currency, whether it's dollars or the, the euro or whether it's the yen, Japanese yen, it comes in and then it's stuck. And they, they control, the Chinese Communist Party controls whether or not you can pull that out. So I think that's the, the, the thing. It shouldn't be a benefit to have a closed financial system because typically we would just say, hey, you're not going to be part of chips. You're not going to be part of the international financial system. You can go and nobody's going to trade with you, right? We're not going to, because they don't want your currency. But because they're able to easily pull in currency and the fact that they use Hong Kong as kind of the, the magnet for that currency. So it comes in Hong Kong, then it goes into China and then it's stuck. I think is a is a huge benefit to China, and this what so when you talk about um, trade imbalances, there um, what's typically talked talk about alongside that trade imbalance is a corresponding trade in currency, and so if you're if you have a huge trade imbalance, then that has the um, the 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 complementary effect of having a trade in currencies, and what happens is a trade. The, the one that's, that's exporting more, their goods, they're, in order to buy those goods, you're having to buy more of that currency. That starts to make that currency go up. And that means the prices of those products go up for the importer. And so as those prices go up, then you can have an offsetting capability to produce products in the other country that tends to even out the trade imbalance. But when you have a non-freely traded currency like the Chinese have, you can keep this trade imbalance going indefinitely, and that's what they do. Okay, so there's a lot of speculation about the digital the digital yuan, Russia. Are they going to try to pull people and, and create their own reserve currency? When I hear you talk like that, I tend to think that's not what they would want to do, but what are your right. thoughts? Why no, they, 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 no, they do not want to become the dollar because then they have to let their currency float. So the way that they create a dominant currency is to create their own trading regime. That's the Belt and Road Initiative. So basically, when you think about what they're doing is they're creating client states, satellite states that send them raw materials, energy and food, and they send them, um, uh, you know, uh, finished goods. Now, the, what China has begun to do is take low-value-added manufacturing and begin to place them in areas along the Belt and Road Initiative, Africa, Central Asia. And what their goal is with that is a lot of times those low-value-added manufacturing brings with them young Chinese males who don't have corresponding females because of the one-child policy and the tendency for um, – 
you know, mandatory abortion and the tendency to abort girls over boys. So they've got an oversupply of, of males. Well, those males get exported along the Belt and Road Initiative, then begin to intermarry and strengthen the Chinese communist tie to that country because they're all, all of those people that go over, those tens of thousands of people in each of those areas are highly, highly, highly um, uh, supportive and loyal to the Chinese Communist Party. And so it's a way for China to use what it has done, use its people and resources to, to continue to spread its, uh, its system. And so that along those lines, the digital yuan and the yuan itself, um, as the digital yuan is starting to be used more and more, will be the de facto currency for, but that's gonna be a closed system. Their goal is to have that closed system exclude the nations that they want to essentially put on the outside. And those are countries like the United States, India, for example. And the way they do that is this um, hyper uh, efficient um, logistic system. So they have these huge uh, super Panamax vessels, which you know have 32,000 TEU of containers that go to ports that are highly automated, all run by the Chinese. And if you look along the Belt and Road Initiative, they have they own the shipping, they own the ports on both sides. If you own the shipping uh, and the ports on both sides, it's all automated, so that you get more efficiencies. You you have the net effect from an economic perspective of having the distance between those ports. And so what they're creating this hyper-efficient trading regime that all, all ties itself back to China. And part of that is the, the, the digital yuan. And so it, it's not going to be you know, where they take over the dollar. They're just gonna suppress the places where dollars are used because all of these nations are tightly integrated with China both from a leadership perspective, because they've, they've incentivized the leaderships of these countries, but also um, these low value added manufacturing hubs and logistics hubs where you have lots and lots of Chinese nationals that are, that are um, being essentially exported to these areas. It becomes a way for them to create um, an alternative to the free market system that is highly tied to um, the benefit of the Chinese Communist Party. So, Rob, what what can nations do to counter these things? You know, there's I, I don't know what the percentage is now, but I think, you know, Chinese companies own probably 60, 70 percent of of the trading ports and the software and logistics and those things. And maybe even be higher than that. I'm, I'm not sure. But what can nations do to, to counter some of this so that there is a balance in the trade? Um, I'm all for competition. I'm all for you know competing and stuff like that. And we need to be competitive. But uh, what, in your opinion, is, is uh, the best way to counter? Yeah, so it's a very simple strategy we came up with um, uh, in the National Security Strategy. It's called um, Protect, Rebuild, Inspire. So protect is really about decoupling from China ensuring that they don't have access to our, our economy, our financial system, our trading system, our institutions. And we had something very similar during the first Cold War, it's called COCOM. And that just said, hey, you know, if you're gonna be an ally, a security partner of the United States, you will not trade with the Soviet Union. So we and our allies have to basically wean ourselves off China. When we do that, all that technology, talent and capital 
that's been going to paper over the inefficient Marxist Leninist system has to go somewhere. Where is it going to go? Well, now it can start to go back into those countries. So, for example, in America, we haven't invested in infrastructure in over 30 years. Our, in terms of science and technology, we're 2% of GDP during the Cold War. Now we're less than 0.7. Most of that goes to NIH, and most of that technology goes to China. They just get it. And so um, you start to take that technology, talent, and capital, and that's the, that's the second part of the strategy, which is rebuild. You begin to rebuild the productive capacity of the free world, the United States and allies and partners. And those allies and partners trade. You know, there's, a, there's a free trade trading regime between the free world countries that you know, establish the principles that you know, the UN and other uh, World Trade Organization where all those organizations, institutions were, were based upon these values. And then when that happens, you start to actually get the net effect that you're looking for, which is China's gonna underperform economically. Free countries uh, in a free trading system are gonna outperform. Um, and then you're gonna see as that reverses, that's when the inspire kicks in because why uh, people have always consistently looked to America is because our values have enabled prosperity, economic opportunity. But when you tie your system to a system like the Chinese Communist Party, who doesn't believe in free trade, then you start to erode those values, and that's why China outperforms. So as this, you know, as we protect, rebuild, you know, and we start to see a difference in uh, productivity performance between the free societies and China's, you know. China plus Russia, North Korea, Iran, and the Belt and Road Initiative countries, then you start to see those nations that are either have already gone over, like during the Cold War, they were part of the Soviet Union, or are on the fence start to say, okay, this system doesn't work. You know, I used to think it works, but now I realize that the reason it was working is because they were taking all the technology, talent, and capital out of the free market countries and allowing their system to prosper. Now we see that actually, if you want to really prosper, you need to be in a free market system. In order for that, you actually have to go. And so that's how um, this competition is. And it's going to take a long time, the same as the first Cold War. This is not the reason you want it to take a long time, because the alternative, it becomes a hot war. And if it becomes a hot war, then you're talking nuclear war. So nuclear weapons really change great power um, you know, dynamics. And I think you know, people like, you know, um, oh gosh, what's a Harvard professor um, that, that wrote the Thucydides trap? Um, uh, Graham. Graham, uh, Graham Allison. People yeah. like Graham Allison don't give enough credence to the, the, the fact that nuclear weapons are here. So you had huge casualties, World War I, you had huge casualties, World War II, and then you look at the intervening history since World War II, nothing like it since. Why? Because as you approach this, um, this potential for having, you know, armed clashes between the, the major protagonists in the world, and they have nuclear weapons, the leaders of those countries start to take a step back and say, okay, if I go whole hog on China or America, or if, if I'm China and I go whole hog on America, it's going to end up in the destruction of everything that I hold dear. And so maybe I need to pick a different path. And this is what the Chinese Communist Party did. Uh, the Soviet Union tried to do it too, but we just said, hey, you're not going to be connected to us, so it's not going to work. 
In China's case, we said, we will change you by connecting your economy and social system to ours. And in fact, the Chinese Communist Party said, ha, we're going to change you. And this is the way that we're going to do it. And they developed a doctrine. It, it's, it's in unrestricted warfare. It's based on lessons learned, just, just like the way we do doctrine in the United States, except it's a different kind of doctrine and a different type of war. Okay, we got about five minutes left. So give me your thoughts on the outlook. Uh, there's a, there's, it seems like there's a lot of talk every day about Taiwan. What's coming with Taiwan? And, and historically speaking, uh, the Chinese have used Taiwan sometimes as a deflection point for what's going on in their own economy. So I do wonder how much of that may be going on. It's just, it's just a deflection. So what's your thoughts on Taiwan? Uh, recently, there was talk of perhaps China and India going to Russia to work together, which would be really weird to see them work together. Can they overcome their differences? And then what should we expect uh, over the next year from China? We'll let you wrap it up with that. Well, I do believe uh, that she is going to invade Taiwan. I think they have the um, sufficient military power to do so and do so very quickly. I think what's been restraining uh, China in the past is the challenge that we talk about, which is they need the technology, talent, and capital in order to keep their feeding their economy. I think they, they feel like now uh, that they have enough, they have what they need. And the other issue, so the other thing that people brings up uh, is why would she do that? That would just be cutting off his nose to spite his face because it would mean that the, the free market countries would pull away and stop allowing them to be part of the, um, the free trade system. Well, the, it's the same reason why Hitler opened up two fronts in World War II. It's the same reason why Putin, uh, why Putin invaded Ukraine. And it is these, it, these totalitarian regimes, the leaders tend to you know, get rid of everybody that um, has a different idea than them. And so there's nobody to left to say the emperor has no clothes. And in this case, you know, you look at what she's been doing, whether it's damaging the tech companies by, uh, you know, preventing them from listing or, you know, like for uh, Ant Financial, for example, that would have been the biggest IPO uh, in, in history. Uh, she wouldn't let it happen. So you're, you're looking across the tech industry in China, and it's absolutely been decimated. And you're saying, well, why is he doing that? Well, the reason he's doing that is he's getting the country prepared for an invasion of Taiwan. So they had banking over, you know, all the international bankers were in Beijing in April discussing the sanctions that were being levied against Russia for having invaded Ukraine. And what the Chinese were trying to figure out is, how are, how are sanctions going to be levied on us when we invade Taiwan, and how do we get around those sanctions? And so they are doing the things right now to move their assets, to make sure that you know, whatever happens post-Taiwan invasion, the, any, any measures taken by the United States and allies are going to be completely ineffectual. There's actually a good um, discussion of this happening prior to the First World War, where the German Kaiser called a meeting. It's in the um, it's in uh, uh, Ambassador Morgenthau's memoir. He was the ambas U.S. ambassador to Turkey uh, during and in, uh, in uh, the prior to and during the First World War. In fact, he was the one that was that called attention to the um, the um, uh, genocide of the Armenians. 
And so anyway, the German ambassador confided to him that prior to the start of World War I, the Kaiser called back all his advisors for a war council. And they talked about, you know, are we ready now to have this war kickoff? And the bankers said, hold on, we need to liquidate our assets in the West. And so there was a mass liquidation of German assets prior to the start of World War I. So what you're starting to see, and it started with the trade agreement uh, in the Trump administration, Liu Ha, which is um, Xi's right-hand economic advisor, and Ambassador Lighthizer, which was the U.S. trade representative to the United States, negotiated a 150-page trade agreement. And the Chinese Communist Party took that trade agreement and tore it up and said, we're not going to do it. And the, what the Trump administration told them is, if you don't do this trade agreement, you're gonna, we're going to begin this decoupling process. And so what's been happening since is that they tore up the Chinese, not the United States, the Chinese tore up that trade agreement and started themselves to begin the decoupling process. So it's not like we've been doing it. We have been trying to stay coupled. They're further decoupling because they're getting ready for an invasion of Taiwan. Now, the lessons learned that they have gotten out of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which they sanctioned. Remember, Putin went to the Beijing uh, to Beijing during the Winter Olympics, and she said, OK, go ahead, just not while the Olympics are going on. The you know, Olympics go, end, and then uh, Putin goes ahead and invades. So what the Chinese learned about the Russian invasion of Ukraine is that, number one, we got to get uh, make sure that, that none of these sanctions can work. So we have to do what we need to do with our assets and, and get our house in order prior to that invasion. But then when we invade, it's the mass, whatever mass that we were thinking of using, we're going to double, triple, quadruple it because we're not going to make the same mistakes as the Russians. And, and more importantly, we have so much more resources on our side of the street than the Russians ever did. Why would we conserve it? So they're not going to be conservative. They're going to be overwhelming. It's going to be violent. It's going to be fast. And, uh, you know, any time after October, when she is confirmed as, um, you know, emperor for life, uh, you can expect it to happen. Well, there's your sunny news for the day. But Dr. General Spalding, <laughs> well, such a, such a chipper note. Okay. Uh, where should we direct people to the book, website? Where do you want us to send people to? Uh, so my, my website's generalspalding.com. Uh, I'm the CEO of Semper, so if people want to learn about hardened infrastructure, which is something I've been focused on because I do think that's a tremendous vulnerability for the United States, they can go to Semper, S-E-M-P-R-E, not E-R, dot A-I, and then the book can be bought, you know, in Amazon or any, uh, anywhere else where books are sold. All right, General Spalding, it was wonderful to have you on. Tyler, thanks for setting this up and for sitting in and co-hosting with us today. Yeah, no problem. Good to see you, Rob. Thank you. Same here. Take care. Thank yeah. you. Okay, there it is. That's some startling and alarming stuff if you agree with Robert Spalding. And so if you do, love for you to contribute to the discussion at the newsletter, uh, warroommedia.com. Any of those will get you there. We'll talk soon.